This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Tim, this week, I've thought about this a lot. It's been a milestone as I've been keeping track. In fact, my calendar book, every week I write, okay, what week it is that we have been, or many have been working from home. Yeah. Week 52. It is. And you know, it's, it's a week that I've seen a lot of memories play out on social media, on text message chains with family. Yeah. One year ago this week, you know, the last time stepping foot in a restaurant, the last time visiting family. Um, it was a year ago this week that the world completely changed. Yeah, exactly. Friday the 13th, March 13, 2020, the last time we had a guest actually wow. in our Bloomberg Radio studio. And I just remember, you know, our managers and like, we want to be safe. We want you home. We're sending you with equipment. Like, we just want to make sure everybody's safe. Uh, hard to believe it. it has been a year. No shortage of virus headlines this week. It's still, of course, top and center for us here. The CDC issuing its first set of guidelines, Carol, on how fully vaccinated people can safely visit with others. And I got to say, people are feeling good about reopenings. But at the same time, we keep talking to various members of the medical community like, listen, we still have to be really, really cautious. And I got to say, on that, we've got the person that last spring was dubbed by The New York Times the CEO at the center of New York's coronavirus crisis. And we've got a new crisis brewing, cybersecurity. Lucky for us, though, we just happen to have on Tom Siebel, founder of Siebel Systems, also C3AI, just as we learned that hackers broke into thousands of security cameras, exposing Tesla suppliers, jails, even hospitals. Don't you feel like cybersecurity, it's one of those stories people keep saying, you know, you guys aren't talking about it enough. It's a big, big story. It's getting lost in the other headlines. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so all of this to come. Let's begin, though, with this week's issue of the magazine. It features a deep dive into equality, and that includes, Tim, the cover story, which was among our most read on the Bloomberg. It is about Dorothy Brown. So Dorothy Brown, she she spent her career as a law professor documenting racism in a tax system that's supposedly colorblind. In fact, she thought it was colorblind mm-hmm. until she really started doing research onto this years into her career. Bloomberg News personal finance editor Ben Steverman wrote all about it. Right. And Ben joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Joel kicking it off, though, by talking about the overall equality issue. We have relaunched a vertical at at Bloomberg called Equality that will be sort of the home for our ongoing coverage. And we wanted to help make a splash at Businessweek as as we launched that that initiative and that and that project. And so we, we really kind of like pulled together across the global newsroom to try and bring as many of of these stories uh, to life as we could. And, and there were a couple in particular that stood out to me that were a little bit more US-centric that, funny enough, both had to do with taxes. And we heard about Jason Grotto's story on, on property tax um, and, and how it's effectively like a regressive tax. And there was another thing that caught our attention, which was Ben Steverman um, saying, hey, by the way, do you guys know about Dorothy Brown, um, who's got a book coming out? And I said, I, I have never heard of Dorothy Brown. Tell me more. And um, with that, I'll, I'll segue <laughs> over to Ben. Um, this is a professor, a legal, a legal tax expert, um, a law professor at Emory. Um, and she spent decades basically ex- examining the U.S. tax code. And, and Ben, that's where it gets provocative. What has she found? 
Yeah, so she's um, an interesting person. Even before she became uh, an eminent professor of tax law, she grew up in the Bronx. She worked at Drexel Burnham Lambert back in the 80s. She's had a a long career. But um, since the 90s, she's been looking at different parts of the tax code and saying and really analyzing what is the impact this has on wealth, um, especially on the wealth of black people and the wealth of white people. And, and what the, 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 the part of the question is, you know, we've had a racial wealth gap between black and white in this country that really hasn't narrowed at all. So you see many more black people going to college, um, incomes uh, 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 going up, but the wealth of black folks is not keeping pace with the, well, it is keeping pace, but it, it's it's way still way behind um, the, the wealth of, of white families. And so, what she's concluded is that the tax code has um, a, a big part in in that, especially the U.S. income tax and a lot of these carve outs in the income tax for retirement and home ownership and all sorts of other things that have been built into this supposedly progressive system that really end up in a situation where a black person and a white person with similar incomes, uh, the black person can end up paying significantly more. How did she get there to this point? Because initially, I think her thinking, according to your story, is that, you know, thought, you know, tax code is going to be colorblind. Yeah, I mean, that's, that was her assumption when she decided to get into tax. She wanted to escape the whole issue of racism. Her original plan was to be um, following the footsteps of Thurgood Marshall and then she, you know, civil rights lawyer. And she said, I don't want to deal with that in my professional life. I just want to focus on this, this what seems like this colorblind system of all these intricate rules. The tax code doesn't even mention race, really. But she, she um, was part of a movement of people who, back in the 90s who really started to say, hey, there are these uh, other areas of the law. They were written, all these laws were written by white people, generations of white people, um, and, and, you know, is there some hidden racism there? And, and what she's really showing in her book is that the generations of lawmakers have built this system that's really optimized for white wealth, for, people, for white people that are already wealthy. The stories in this week's special equality issue reminding us that so much work still has to be done. That was Bloomberg News personal finance editor Ben Steverman, also Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Be sure to listen to the full audio version of the story on our podcast feed at Bloomberg.com. Hey, and Tim, by the way, Dorothy Brown's book, it's entitled The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. That book coming out later this month, and she's going to be joining us in a few weeks on air to talk about it. Yeah, I'm really excited for that interview. The book not even out yet, already Mm -hmm. making a splash. Exactly. Coming up, more on the equality issue and once again involving taxes and racism. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So we continue with coverage of this week's equality issue at Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Another story, Tim, having to do with taxes and racism, more specifically about how in cities across the U.S., unfair property taxes are keeping black families from gaining wealth. To set it all up, here's Bloomberg's Renita Young. She's got the story of one woman from Detroit. 
I feel like there is no safe place for me to have this conversation because I'm going to get judged one way or another. That's Delisha Scott from Detroit. She was overtaxed on what was once her home. She became a proud homeowner in 2005, a dream because she always wanted stable housing for her kids, something she's never known. But when Scott lost her job during the Great Recession, she fell three years behind on her property tax payments. And those payments she owed were much higher than she should have been paying. Then Wayne County took her home away and auctioned it off for less than 10% of what she paid for it. I feel betrayed too. Last year to learn that I was overtaxed by 5000 It makes me sad. It makes me depressed. It makes me feel like a failure. For years, the city of Detroit used inflated valuations of Scott's house to calculate her property tax bills. She now rents that same home for 27% more than she once paid for the mortgage. You know, it's not just a rental property. This is my home, right? I raised my children in this space. Scott is not alone, and her story is not unique. Her home was among tens of thousands in Detroit's lower-income Black neighborhoods that the city's assessors routinely overvalued. And this happens all across the country, where nationwide data show local officials have also systematically undervalued homes in affluent areas, reducing the taxes those homeowners paid. Bambi Hayes-Brown leads the nonprofit organization Georgia Advancing Communities Together, which focuses on affordable housing and community development. She says the entire real estate system has a role to play in equitable housing, and it all starts with training. Not just your training to get your license and your training for renewal, but to also go deeper into ethics, trainings that look at internal racial biases and how to overcome them. In many cases, real estate investors profit off of unfair tax burdens. But for the people who they weigh on, like Delisha Scott, it leads to a vicious cycle of unpaid bills and property seizures and ultimately destroys the best chance for families to build generational wealth. For more on this story, subscribe to the Paycheck Podcast from Bloomberg with a new season focusing on the racial wealth gap. You can find Paycheck on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That was Bloomberg's Renita Young. Now let's get more on this story, which was among the most read on the Bloomberg this week with the reporter who wrote it. It's Bloomberg News Projects and Investigations reporter Jason Grotto. He joined us, as did Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber, who began by talking about disparities. I think the unfairness is the thing that um, really stings about this one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody hates property taxes to begin with, but then to have unfair qualities kind of layered on top of it, I I think, is a thing that can definitely provoke some outrage. And it is one of these things that's sort of hidden in plain sight, um, but it does affect uh, people of color, especially black communities, uh, disproportionately. So, so Jason, help us. You, you've been through so much data on this one. Help us break down what you found. Uh, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, uh, everybody. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, the, the, the thrust of this story is actually based on a massive study Uh, out of the University of Chicago, uh, Harris School of Public Policy. A professor there, Chris Berry, analyzed 26 million property tax records over a 10-year period. And all over the country, um, the analysis found the same pattern. And that is lower-priced homes uh, being over-assessed and higher-priced ones being under-assessed relative to the market value of those homes. And, of course, all property taxes are based off of these valuations. 
So it's sort of bad data in, bad data out. And the result is it just skews the entire property tax um, uh, and places a much greater burden on those who can least afford it. it. Makes it regressive. So tell us the the story of Delisha here. So you know, uh, D- Delisha is someone who you know I've been talking with for many many months. Uh, you know, obviously it took a lot of bravery for her to come out um, and actually talk and put her story out there. You know, there's a lot of shame that goes on here. But essentially, you know, she bought a home back in 2005 uh, after working at a corporate cafeteria. She doubled her income when she got a job at a domestic violence shelter and was able to qualify for a mortgage. And and things were going along fine until the Great Recession uh, when she lost her job. And it took her a couple of years to get a job back and she missed the tax payment. And once you fall behind on property taxes, it's really difficult, you know, to get back uh, you know, caught up with those because there's so many fees and fines that get ladled on. And so she just couldn't catch up. Um, the Wayne County, the county, you know, for Detroit foreclosed on the home and then auctioned it off, um, as your story mentioned. And since then, it's been sold two more times while mm-hmm. she's been renting the home. So the last sale was for $84,000, um, you know, far more than she paid originally. And, you know, part of the reason why the value has gone up, because her rents have gone up, because now, you know, it's an income-producing property, and the cash that it that it throws off every month is keeping the, right. the value high. Well, the yeah. invest, right, there's a whole investment angle into that, and, and I wish we had more time. But one thing I do want to get to is this whole idea between, you know, tax assessment being overvalued and private appraisal sales being undervalued. And as you say, you know, Christopher Berry's re- research, it's not just Detroit. You talk about a, an example in Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. It's all over the place. We, we spoke with a woman, Carmen Daniels, in East New York, you know, who, you know, the, the really hard thing here is Ms. Daniels, her property, uh, you know, a single family home, um, she felt like the valuation that the New York City Department of Finance put on it was pretty good. You know, she thought it was pretty fair. Mm-hmm. But then she learns that, you know, three miles away in Clinton Hill, there's a condo that someone bought for $3 million and the tax, you know, it's taxed as if it were worth only $1.2 million. So even though that home, the market value, is eight times greater than hers, the actual tax bill is only $1,000 more for that prop, higher price property. So once again, the burden of it is, you know, tilted uh, unfairly. There's something called the effective tax rate, which I'm sure everyone knows about. That's what gets skewed because of these valuation. That was Bloomberg News Projects and Investigations reporter Jason Grotto and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Check out more of Business Week's special equality issue. It's on newsstands online and on the Bloomberg. Still ahead. Unfortunately for New York City, it seems to be anomalous compared to a lot of the declines we're seeing in the rest of the country. We check in with the CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital one year since the COVID outbreak. Yes, we've made some progress, but there's still a lot of cause for concern. There really is. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. 
So as we mentioned at the top, this week marked the one-year anniversary when the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a global pandemic, which meant, Tim, we know this, for so many of us, the beginning of working from home and a, a real complete disruption of our lives. Friday the 13th, we're talking about Friday, March 13th, 2020. Tim, that was the day we last had a live guest in studio. I think for a lot of people, including our next guest, mm-hmm. there were signs that this was going to be worse than we thought even earlier than March 13th of last year. Dr. Stephen Corwin, president and CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital, who, as you might recall, the New York Times calling in the spring the CEO at the center of New York's coronavirus crisis. Unfortunately for New York City, it seems to be anomalous compared to a lot of the declines we're seeing in the rest of the country. What we've seen was a secondary surge uh, that started in that December time frame Uh, And we still have a lot of COVID patients in the hospital and a lot of sick COVID patients in the hospital. So although we're at about 30 to 35 percent of where we were at that horrendous peak in the April time frame, uh, we still have a lot of patients in the ICU. We're still living with the virus. And the positivity rate in New York City still is hovering in that 5 percent range. So it still doesn't really feel good in terms of what our emergency rooms and ICUs are seeing. So hopefully, uh, with, the, uh, with the vaccine, as we get more people vaccinated, uh, the quicker we get people vaccinated, the less likely one of these uh, variants uh, uh, will escape the vaccine and we can get back to normal. But right now we're seeing a plateau at a level that we're not really happy with, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's some really disconcerting news. And and my question is, is why? I mean, we did learn today that new virus variants account for 51% of New York City's COVID cases. That's what health officials said at a briefing on Wednesday. We, we know that these are more infectious than older strains of the virus. Is this why this is happening in New York? I think so. I mean, you know, it, it, all of this becomes speculative because we're not testing every single sample, but it looks like uh, the British variant is the dominant variant. We've seen some South African variant uh, with our own genetic testing uh, when we do sampling. Um, So I I think that that's probably it. The more disturbing thing is that uh, the percentage in the ICUs has gone up, and and that means that, you know, the, the number of people who are quite critically ill has gone up. Um, So even with the South African variant, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, people did not end up in the hospital and did not end up in the ICU. So I think that's going to be the critical thing, uh, making sure that people don't end up in the hospital, even if the positivity rate um, is high. Dr. Corwin, are the demographics the same? Is it older people? Is it minorities in terms of the more severe cases or the majority of cases? It's a somewhat younger skew, Okay. Mm -hmm. in part because I think that Uh, Thank God the nursing home uh, patients and a lot of elderly patients have already gotten the vaccine, so that's good. Um, And we're, you know, uh, I know that younger people are at lower risk, but we see a lot of uh, young people in the ICU. So everyone's got to be, particularly people, uh, young people who are, have high body mass indexes or are obese um, or pre-diabetic and diabetic. So uh, so that's uh, that's of concern. You know, (laughs) I heard your two anecdotes about about what you recall. My recollection of that date was, you know, on March 8th, believe it or not, March 8th of last year, we had four COVID cases in our entire health system, which has 3,600 beds. By March 15th, we had 66 patients. By March 22nd, we had 590 patients. 
And by March 23rd, we had 1,600 patients. So you recall that dramatic slope. And for those of us in New York, how absolutely horrific it is. But my recollection of that week was actually this very day, uh, my chief operating officer, Dr. Laura Faris, called her contacts uh, in the archdiocese and said, you don't really plan to go ahead with the St. Patrick's Day parade, do you? (laughs) And if you recall, that Friday before the St. Patrick's Day, uh, they canceled it. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, we all sort of rolled into it thinking, let's hope for the best. And it was really horrific. Listen, Tim, that's something we've heard over and over throughout the pandemic. That was Dr. Stephen Corwin, president and CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital. And we know that even though vaccines are, are rolling out, Tim, we've heard from everybody. You still got to wear masks. You still got to do some social distancing. We still have a long way to go. Yeah, we certainly do. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next... Well, increasingly, that is the case. Somebody is watching. A Bloomberg exclusive involving the breach of thousands of surveillance cameras inside hospitals, companies, police departments, prisons, and more. Totally creeped out. All right, what our team uncovered, that's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Big Bloomberg exclusive this week. We were all over it when it crossed the Bloomberg terminal. It was about a group of hackers that say they breached a massive trove of security camera data collected by a Silicon Valley startup. And Tim, in doing so, they gained access to live feeds of what, about 150,000 surveillance cameras. They were inside everywhere. Hospitals, companies, police departments, prisons, schools, even a Tesla supplier. But talk about serendipity. Mm -hmm. When this news broke, we actually had Tom Siebel, founder, chairman and CEO at C3AI, on the air. You were talking to him. Tom is also, of course, founder of Siebel Systems. I think the threat associated with cyber threat, okay, from bad actors in nation states, including Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, is existential. I mean, these people have the ability to shut down the United States grid, power grid infrastructure, the financial system, the healthcare system, you know, with a cell phone from the other side of the planet, and they can do it tomorrow. This has been very, very well documented in books that have been recently published, such as The Perfect Weapon. And uh, this is how they tell me the world ends. Uh, And this is very, very serious stuff. The National Security Commission for Artificial Intelligence published its report four years in the making, then concludes that today the United States government is not organized or investing to win the technology competition against a committed competitor, nor is it prepared to defend against AI-enabled threats and rapidly adopt AI applications for national security purposes. We are exposed. There are bad actors out there, and this is very scary. Well, you know, it just reminds me of, it's like, I've seen this movie before. We saw it in the form of the health pandemic. Lots of warnings for years, and yet we weren't prepared. And I feel like we're setting setting up for something like that again. And I have to say, I'm reading this story, and they say um, they breached massive trove of security camera data collected by a Silicon Valley startup, Verkata. 
They gained access to live feeds of 150,000 security cameras inside hospitals, companies, police departments, prisons, and schools, able to view video from inside women's health clinics, psychiatric hospitals, and the offices of this uh, company, Verkata itself. Um, and they were using, in some cases, some of these cameras, including in hospitals, were using facial recognition technology to identify and categorize people captured on the footage. Um, I think about this, you are so in on the AI world. You talk about us not being prepared for, listen, there's great things to be had by it, but there's also a downside. We're not ready for it or not prepared for it. When you get into cybersecurity and infosec, this is just very scary stuff. I mean, the Chinese went into the uh, Office of Personal Management in Washington, D.C., and it walked off with like 20 million records of everybody that's ever been con- considered for a security clearance. I mean, the you know the Russians okay, were in there within the last month, and no telling, nobody's even telling the story of how thoroughly they penetrated the United States government. I mean, the emperor has no clothes. It, this is not on the national agenda, and this is existential. If these people were to turn off the U.S. power grid, which they could do in a second, right. nine out of ten people in the United States die. So this makes the whole COVID pandemic look like a common cold, you know, compared to, I mean, this is very, very serious stuff. This is existential stuff, and it's not on the national agenda. Yeah, it says another video shot inside the Tesla warehouse in Shanghai shows workers on an assembly line. Hackers said they obtained access to 222 cameras in Tesla factories and warehouses. Well, this is your world. You're having conversations with people who are tapping into and working with you guys. You provide, you know, enterprise AI software. Um, Is anybody kind of aware of how to do this in a responsible way? I mean, this is your world. Yeah, I would say the organizations that are most equipped, okay, and have the, the, the greatest levels of security as it relates to AI and cybersecurity are the banks. Mm-hmm. I mean, these mm-hmm. guys have have security regimens where their information systems are completely air-gapped. They're tested. They have security protocols that are incredibly rig- rigorous. Whether they're dealing with the U.S. banks or the European banks, these people have done a superlative job, and the people in the United States government could go to school on that. They look like, you know, candidly, they look like Cub Scouts compared to the way the banks handle information security. You've been kind enough to indulge us as we were breaking down these headlines on this major hack. You know, listen, Tom, you've been in the technology world for a long time. You've seen it evolve. It's gotten much more sophisticated. It's got a lot more invasive. It's gotten a lot more useful. And it's such a part of everything that we do. AI specifically, talk to us about kind of what's front and center right now in terms of where it's going, who's using it, where it's going to be the most productive. Well, leading corporations around the world are using AI in smart skin analytics, precision medicine, uh, aerospace, manufacturing, telecommunications, banking, and they're using AI to deliver better products and services, to deliver safer, cleaner, more reliable energy. They're using AI to secure data uh, uh, data assets from cybersecurity attacks. They're using AI in defense and intelligence. This is the largest, this is, you know, we look at enterprise AI software. This is a third of a trillion dollar market in say 2024. 
So this is the largest growing enterprise application software market in history. Okay, and we serve all segments of that industry from banking to telco to healthcare to government. Listen, so uh, give me AI for dummies, because I feel like we throw around, certainly not you, <laughs> but we throw around the term artificial intelligence a lot. And I think people have a grasp of it, but I don't think they understand, especially as you go through that list of basically our world, to be quite fair, uh, whether it's military, whether it's you know medical, whether it's energy, um, where the use of AI is making things so much better. What is the AI for dummies, if you had to explain it to somebody? Great question. Okay, so AI, and so when you strip away all the, all the mystique and all the noise, AI is an area that we call predictive analytics, where we're able, due to kind of advances in information technology, to solve problems that never been able to solve before, where we can predict things before they happen very accurately. Heart failure, okay, diabetes, okay, a, 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 a failure of a transformer in New York City, okay, the failure of a jet engine. So we can predict these events or the failure of a, a, a critical piece of equipment on an offshore oil rig, say, for Royal Dutch Shell, where we can predict these events, you know, say, days or months in advance and replace the transformer in New York City and prevent the, 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 the electricity outage, okay, it, it intervene uh, clinically and prevent the heart failure. Okay, do some intervention on the machine and prevent the, the aircraft failure before it fails. In a nutshell, that's what enterprise AI is all about, is predictive analytics, and that is accurately predicting events before they happen, and we're able to do that today with very high levels of precision. Well, and when it comes to something like healthcare, listen, we have all been obsessed with our healthcare because our lives depended on it in the last year. And understanding, we all got, I think, safe to say, somewhat smarter in understanding how vaccines are developed and the complications of, you know, a virus and, and all these things. When it comes to healthcare specifically, you talk about AI, like we can predict heart failure. I mean, is this an area that we have yet to explore in a big way when it comes to AI? Yes, I think this is well, this is a field where we apply AI to healthcare. This is what we call precision medicine. Mm -hmm. This will be the largest commercial application of AI. And for example, we can take the genome sequences and the healthcare records of say the population of the United States or any population, okay, and apply machine learning algorithms to these data and predict with very high levels of precision who is going to be diagnosed with what disease, okay, in the next five years, heart disease, lung cancer, whatever it might be, and then intervene clinically and avoid the diagnosis. Well, this, you combine that with telemedicine to reach uh, previously unserved um, members of the community, and the economic and social benefit of this is staggering. Then you have genome-specific medical protocols, where we, where we, you know, have tailored medical protocols to the individual genome, which are highly, much going to be much more highly efficacious right. at a much lower cost. So these are examples of AI applied to medicine. This will be, again, the largest application of AI uh, in any field. That was Tom Siebel, founder, chairman, and CEO at C3AI. He's also author of the book, Digital Transformation, Survive and Thrive in an Era of Mass Extinction. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. More ahead in our next hour, including... 
our Women's History Month special hour, a look at prominent individuals in finance, tech, venture capital, and innovation who just also happen to be women as well. That's right. Our all-female lineup includes the CEO of Workboard and why diversity is so important, especially when it comes to venture capital. Also, the CFO at Estee Lauder on global growth and consumers, what they're buying, lipstick, not so much, skincare, yeah. I definitely have bought a lot of skincare during the pandemic. And also coming up, Verizon Business CEO on supporting women-owned small businesses and female entrepreneurs. And grab your favorite snack, but ditch that plastic cutlery. We're going to have the president and founder of Habits of Waste on how you can help combat climate change by making these simple changes in your life. Does it have to be an organic snack? I don't know, but it's going to be easy. <laughs> okay, deal. This is Bloomberg. For those fortunate enough to help the person who has always been their hero, find the care guides you need to help at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. In the second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, some of our great guests on International Women's Day, leaders in tech, innovation, branding, and the environment who just happen to be women as well. We're going to hear from the CFO at Estee Lauder on how the global cosmetics giant and its consumers around the globe have been shopping during the pandemic. Yeah, the trends have changed a little bit. Also, a friend of the show, Verizon Business CEO Tammy Irwin, on where we stand in the fight for equality. Little hint, we've got a long way to go. Yeah, we certainly do. Mm -hmm. Carol, you also had a great conversation with the president and founder of Habits of Waste. She's spreading the message about small, everyday changes that we can make that would make a big difference. This was a favorite interview of mine. First up, though, let's get to the entrepreneur who has founded and led three tech startups, sold one to IBM, ran a high-growth business at IBM. We're talking about Deidre Paknad. She's CEO and co-founder of the enterprise SaaS company Workboard. They work with Comcast, Cisco, GE, AstraZeneca, so many companies, and she is definitely no stranger to the VC world. This is my third company where I sought funding and, and got funding in yeah. the VC world. And it, it, I'll say, you know, with some embarrassment that it hasn't improved much in <laughs> the few decades that I've been working on it. I think part of it is um, we don't look like what the prototypical founder should look like, right? The archetype that people have in their heads. Now, that's changing, I think, now in very meaningful ways. And there's a lot of organizations driving change, including, for example, All Rays. And what you see today, which you just wouldn't have seen five years ago, much less 10 years ago, is women partners at really every quality firm has real women partners making real investment decisions uh, and driving those investment decisions in, in the VC firm. So I think we, well, it takes a bit of time. I think we actually finally turned a corner on uh, getting women partners in the venture firms that actually fuel those startups. Well, that that gives me hope. Um, what about corporate boards, though? And I know this is something that you've certainly been keeping an eye on. Corporate boards, still mostly white. Uh, white uh, are eight in 10 directors at S&P 500 companies, at least in 2019. 72% are still male. What's going on with corporate boards? Why is it so slow? Especially when we I'm, you know, we know the research when it comes to diversity, McKinsey's done it, so many others have done it, that when you've got a diverse board, when you've got a diverse senior leadership, you do better financially. 
think there's a couple things that are shifting there and that will accelerate, in some sense, sort of accelerate post-2020. But a, a couple of those, one is, you know, I just added two women independent directors to my board, Margot Giorgiadis, uh, who was a former CEO of Ancestry, and Kathy Benko, who is a former vice chair of Deloitte, both really senior, talented women. And as I was doing the search to add them to the board, I used a search firm that was focused on women executives. And so what they'd done, which is something I think hadn't been done in the past, is actually build the database of candidates, build the pool, mm-hmm. so that when you want to find talent, you're looking at a pool that is enriched by women leaders and women executives versus the same old database of the same old pool that looks the same old way it's always looked. And that's what people, and that's what's going on still at a lot of companies, right? Everybody's going back to the existing pools, the old ones. Exactly. But I do think that executive search firms are now quite mindful of opening the aperture. The other thing, and probably more interesting, is in my work with senior leaders, most of them are looking beyond their own sector for expertise, for insights, for how other people are changing the game. And most of them are acutely aware of the extreme disruptive opportunities and, frankly, risks Mm -hmm. to face their business. And I think that what we'll see is this enormous generation of direct-to-consumer leaders, many of whom are women, who created fantastic companies, grown them, have real go-to-market leadership skills and are very disruptive thinkers. If I were the CEO of a mainstream company looking for diversity of thought, provocative ideas, and a way to enrich the conversations I was having at the board, I would look to those disruptive leaders coming out of DC, DTC, right? What, what is it? Bumble, for what, example. What, oh, forgive me. What is it about D2C that you think really puts them out there ahead of, ahead of others? They're business models, the way they think about reaching their customers, the way okay. they think about serving those customers, it's a, it, often, a, a lot of it is just blank slate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Not bogged down by the way we've always done it and started instead with well, what would be awesome? Like what, would, what could we imagine? And then that's a pool of many, many women in those organizations as co-founders, as CEOs, as COOs, as CFOs, right? Women in different roles there. So I think it creates a pipeline of diverse talent that has the kind of disruptive thinking and phenomenal success that you'd want around you in the boardroom. Because I do wonder too, and you probably have a lot of experience at this or, or a great person to talk to about this, is that you know money always talks. And I do wonder if there's at some point somebody's gonna be like, wow, look at this company. Uh, the diversity that they've got and look at how well they're doing. And so what's the common denominator? What is it that's getting them to that point? Uh, and I know there's a lot of factors at play that make a successful venture or institution or company, but we but we know the research. And I do wonder at some point, is it just people are like, this is the smart thing to do financially, especially if you're publicly held or anything? Yeah, I, I think in, until it leaders perceive, CEOs perceive it as the smart thing to do financially as, until they perceive it as when I bring those different voices on that different experience to my table, I'm a smarter leader. That was Deidre Paknad, CEO and co-founder of the enterprise SaaS company Workboard. The full conversation on our podcast feed. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up, the CFO at SD Lauder and what global consumers are buying. That's up next. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Estee Lauder is a behemoth when it comes to the cosmetic, skincare, and fragrance world. They are, Tim, one of the largest in the world, selling in some 150 countries. They own a portfolio of brands, some created internally, many others like La Mer, Bobbi Brown, Glam Glow, MAC, and others. They bought them. A great person to find out what's going on around the world and answer the question of what consumers are buying is Tracy Travis, Executive Vice President of Finance, also CFO of Estee Lauder. The consumer, um, you know, uh, based on what we've seen globally, you know, is still um, supporting, obviously, Prestige Beauty. I mean, our, our sales, you know, are, are recovering, um, you know, every, every month, every, uh, every quarter. Certainly, we just uh, reported our, our second quarter results, um, and uh, we returned to growth um, for, uh, you know, a, a quarter earlier than what we had expected. Um, but the consumer is, uh, you know, is, is gradually, um, you know, coming back to, I think, spending um, in, in the categories that, uh, that are important to, uh, to her, like, like beauty. How did consumer spending shift during the pandemic? Consumer um, spending sh- shifted very much um, to online, first of all. So, you know, we were one of the companies that um, our our distribution was deemed to be non-essential globally. You know, we sell only prestige beauty, so we sell in a lot of department stores and specialty stores, um, which closed um, initially during during the pandemic um, and then uh, reopened. But you know, traffic has been um, been a bit light um, and has gradually been building. So we saw a tremendous shift to online, and we were prepared for that. You know, with um, our own uh, brand.com sites. Um, with our retail partners and, uh, and their sites, as well as some of the platforms and pure play um, sites that, uh, that we sell on. Um, we saw a uh, tremendous, um, you know, uh, shift to, um, to looking for uh, her favorite skincare products, whether it's La Mer or Clinique or, or Estee Lauder um, or some of the other skincare brands uh, that, we, uh, that we have. We also saw um, a pickup in fragrance. Um, and again, no surprise, more people working from home. Uh, people um, were, um, uh, we saw our, our um, bath and body uh, category grow as well as our home fragrance category grow. Um, so, you know, those are, are some of the trends that we have observed during the pandemic. Makeup has been the most impacted, no surprise, uh, given, given the fact that, you know, many people are working from home and those that are going out, um, many are wearing masks as uh, you know, as instructed. And so that does have an impact on particularly the largest categories of makeup, foundation, and and lips. Um, And those are categories that we expect certainly as uh, the vaccine rollout, um, you know, continues to progress. uh, And uh, and we start to see people migrating back to work and back to school and resuming some of their social activities. Um, we expect, you know, to have a strong, strong makeup recovery at that point in time. Tracy, I feel like you've described me. I spent so much more on uh, skincare uh, in the last uh, year or so um, uh, than, yeah. than, you know, certainly on, you know, traditional makeup. And it's just very interesting. You talked about, though, 
you know, shifting to online. And I do wonder, we've seen just an increased digitization of our world when it comes to retail, not just you guys, but everybody. And, you know, folks that had strategies that maybe they were going to roll out over the you know next three to five years, all of a sudden did them overnight. What has changed in terms of your digital strategy specifically because of the pandemic and just, you know, seeing how this is how an increasing uh, number of consumers want to shop? Uh, well, we had a very strong um, focus on, on online for for many years. Actually, right. we started our online sites more than more than twenty years ago, mm-hmm. um, and so we were focused. It was our fastest growing channel heading into the pandemic. What we've seen is an acceleration of the penetration of of online. Certainly, more consumers, a lot of new consumers that we had not um, seen uh, purchase online previously, started to purchase online. Obviously, when uh, when um, uh, brick and mortar, um, you know, became uh, less less uh, attractive to, to shop in um, during this pandemic, and so we expect that we're going to continue to see those those trends coming coming out of the pandemic. Clearly, we expect that consumers will return to brick and mortar, but those that you know have um, developed uh, the habit of shopping online, uh, we expect will continue. And we have added quite a bit of functionality to our online site. That has have many of our retail partners. We've added virtual try-on in terms of makeup. Um, we have a virtual diagnostic uh, for our, um, our Clinique brand. Um, we have live streaming events. We've added a lot more video content and how-tos. And we've actually seen, which is one of our encouraging signs for makeup, we've seen uh, more consumers actually access uh, those videos. and. Uh, um, you know, with an interest in, in learning more about skincare treatments as well as uh, as well as uh, makeup um, treatments as well. This is this is a business where people like to try before they buy, um, and, and you know they they, they do that uh, in in person in stores. I'm wondering how the in person experience is going to change on the other side of this pandemic. We think that, you know, again, uh, you know, we have tried to add as much consultation uh, to our online sites as, as possible, but we also know that people miss that human interaction um, and that ability to actually uh, buy now, get now. And so mm-hmm. that's something that, you know, certainly an in-store experience uh, provides in addition to, as, as you mentioned, um, being able to physically physically try on product. You know, we have sanitary practices at, you know, all of our counters and in our freestanding stores. Um, so, you know, as consumers return, you know, we are, are, are making sure that, um, that they can try uh, comfortably and, and right. safely. You know, in terms of, of the behaviors post, uh, post-pandemic, you know, we do expect that, you know, we ended last year with our online business, um, you know, at a 23% penetration. You know, we certainly mm-hmm. expect to grow from, from there going forward. As vaccines continue to roll out, they're expecting more business, of course. That was Tracy Travis, Executive Vice President of Finance, also CFO of Estee Lauder. Got to say, I find it interesting, too, you know, and I'm not surprised. We've seen shopping trends change dramatically over the past year, what people are buying, how they're buying. Uh, and what she talked about, kind of a focus on skincare. I've seen that in my own world. You know, you're not buying lipstick. You're not doing the things you were doing when the world was opening, you know, was opened up. Yeah, duh, it makes sense. If you're wearing a mask, you're not necessarily buying what you'd be putting on your face you seem like a mask kind of guy <laughs> wait i was i i was thinking of like i wasn't thinking of was like was that a pause 
I was thinking of like overnight masks. I mean, I wasn't thinking that's of overnight what I, masks. That's what I mean. No, I was thinking. But you're of a mask. Like, you're also awesome. like like you know my my N95s that I'm wearing around the office. That's what Which, I'm thinking. Well, you're that too. But I could see with like a purple I didn't, when glam she said glow masks, mask. I was on. thinking, yeah, sure, sign me up. Give it to me. Give me the mask. All right, still to come on Bloomberg Business Week. I think what we're now seeing is a sense of hope and optimism. Verizon Business CEO Tammy Irwin on helping women and female entrepreneurs succeed. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Carol, recently Verizon Business announcing an effort led by our next guest. It's all about championing women and confronting the ongoing crisis of women leaving the workforce at unprecedented rates due to the impact of the pandemic. We see it everywhere. Tim, she's a favorite voice of mine to check in with. We're talking about Verizon Business CEO Tammy Irwin, who I've talked with several times throughout the pandemic. And this time around, again, that's where we started. We've talked so much about how people have reacted and responded. And now we're really in that phase where people are beginning to reimagine uh, what the workforce of the future looks like. We're calling it work forward at Verizon, which is how will we work and what does the new norm look like? You know, Carol, you and I have talked about some of the challenges that women have faced throughout 2020 with the COVID. And I think what we're now seeing is a sense of hope and optimism, a sense that kids might be back in school in the fall. So I would just tell you, I think we're seeing resiliency and we're seeing hope as people begin to look to what the workforce of the future might be and how that will give women a little more time to lean into their career and give them a chance to get out and live life. Well, having said that, you guys at Verizon are very specific and deliberate when it comes to initiatives and programs. Talk to us about the most recent effort and some of the work that you guys have done, whether it's mentoring, whether it's working with small businesses. Tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing right now. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. We are really proud of the work that we've done to really put a spotlight on so many things. Carol, you and I have talked about the fact that when COVID hit, we said our number one priority was taking care of our employees, followed by our second stakeholder, was, which is making sure customers have all the connectivity and the services that they get and rely on from Verizon. And then third, caring for shareholders and fourth, caring for society. And as we've looked at how we really lean in and care for all four of those stakeholders, We've really put a lot of time into how do we make sure that women have a chance to be successful. We know in January alone, 275,000 women dropped out of the labor force. Uh, we know that women are coming into the workforce more educated than ever before, but falling out. So what we've done is a number of things, you know, building off of things we did in 2020. Uh, we successfully launched a program last year called Women in Business, and it was a series of seminars and it was a seminar that really focused on a number of different verticals. So whether you were in the healthcare, whether you were in entertainment, whether you were in uh, a public sector of finance, you had an opportunity to really say, what are other women doing and what are the things I need to do to be successful? Those seminars were viewed 200,000 times. Wow. Because what we know is that working women view employee-sponsored resources as an important aspect 
of how they do it all, how they balance this work uh, personal that they're trying to do. We're really building off that, though, and we've said that's great for yesterday, but what can we do in 2021? And we've launched a new program we announced on Friday called Verizon CoLab, and it is really intended to be a collaborative career engine platform that we're going to invite others to participate on as we talk uh, with women about the things that they need to do to be most successful as they reimagine mm-hmm. um, in an environment well, post-COVID. And we think that's really important. Tammy, one thing I want to ask you, especially because you at Verizon and your team, there's a lot of different programs that you've put out there. What really makes a difference in terms of giving um, a woman a woman's the support they need the leg up the ability to kind of aspire for more you know where they maybe have you know financial responsibilities at, at a firm you know to take on more what what are the programs is it mentoring is it you know we had a great story on the Bloomberg specifically uh, at a European bank who said you know what really makes a difference is childcare, <laughs> enable you know enabling women to then take on more so what is it specifically that you find packs the biggest punch when it comes to helping women advance professionally and really get to those yeah. higher echelons. Yeah, listen, I think there's several critical things. One you touched on, which is caregiver programs, whether it's caring for children or caring for aging parents, making sure that companies offer programs to give families choice as to how they take care of those responsibilities. So that's one that we've really taken a leadership position in. The other one is really making sure that women have the right kind of competence skills and capabilities to compete in the um, in the work environment. I started a program in 2017 that I'm super excited about. Uh, it's called WOW, which was Women of Wireless. We've translated into Women of the World. It is a program deployed across Verizon at this point. We've got 6,000 women who graduated from that program, and it's really designed to say, help women learn great confidence. How do I define my personal brand as a woman? compete for jobs, have good communication skills, and learn to network. All things women are great at, but sometimes they need a little encouragement. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they need to be taught how to effectively do that. That was Verizon Business CEO Tammy Irwin. Coming up. Most people don't even want it, so it's a win-win. And by the way, restaurants are saving a ton of money. Our next guest successfully convinced Uber to change settings in their application so that no one, no one receives forks and knives, plastic forks and knives, unless they ask for it. Wow, talk about a change maker. This is the president and founder of Habits of Waste. Coming up next, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Tim, we have talked a lot about the climate, certainly on air, and about climate change in the past year. Some good blue skies, animals coming out, seeing mountain ranges for the first time as our society was shut down because of the pandemic. Not good that it was shut down because of that, but nonetheless, the environment came back in a big way. Right. As Bloomberg Green reported last year, as many as 2.6 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions, it's about 8% of the estimated total for the year, will never be admitted into the atmosphere. That's according to estimates by the International Energy Agency. Pick any world-shaking event from 20th century history, 
none has produced a bigger decrease in admissions. And that's the good news. But Tim, you also smartly remind us that we've also seen single-use garbage move up, plastic utensils, masks, and a lot more because of the pandemic. Right. Masks on the ground, gloves on the ground. You still see it everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Well, looking at how we can create, all of us can create better habits that help the environment and climate is Sheila Moravati. She's president and founder of Habits of Waste. And we began talking about what the past year has been like for her. (laughs) <laughs> it's been quiet, I have to say. I've been, um, I was living a very intense life prior to the pandemic. I don't even know how I did it. I mean, I was the classic person that was burning the candle at two ends, and the pandemic just forced us into a very different lifestyle that, um, you know, really made me think a lot of, about a lot of things. So, um, the environment is definitely at the top of the list. Well, and it's interesting because of the pandemic, as I mentioned uh, in the intro to this, is that like all of a sudden we talked about with people not driving to work and planes not flying, uh, the environment got a lot cleaner. At the same time, we have been using a lot of single-use items, whether it's uh, plastic cutlery and plastic bags or you know masks one time. So it's, it's kind of this dichotomy of, of different things going on. Um, Tell us about what you are trying to do with Habits of Waste, and especially when I feel like we've all had a past year to really think about our impact, our footprint on society. Absolutely. Um, so I come into environmentalism with a little bit of a different angle. I studied sociology at UCLA and found it fascinating to understand human behavior and how to shift the behavior of the masses. So throughout the pandemic, um, food delivery applications went through the roof. So the increase in food delivery orders was about 250%. So what I realized is if we were able to convince people to only receive plastic cutlery upon request, how could we decrease the 40 billion pieces of plastic cutlery that are entering our waste stream every single year? So I was able to convince Uber Eats, Postmates, and Grubhub to swap that default setting so it's no plastic cutlery comes out anymore unless you ask for it. We're still waiting on DoorDash to jump in, and it's imperative that they join us because they had about 45% of all food delivery orders in 2020. That being said, um, we used technology to get to this point. We had an email campaign on our website at habitsofwaste.org where users could come in, send an email, and it would go directly to these food delivery applications. And I felt that if the food delivery apps knew that this is what we wanted, we have this junk drawer everybody has in the kitchen that they feel horrible about throwing away, Mm -hmm. yet it's filled to the rim with plastic cutlery. I mean, ask anybody. They've got one. So luckily, these um, emails worked, and we sent about 10,000 emails to date. <clears throat> and now we're just holding out for DoorDash, and then we'll have it all done. It's amazing so, how, though, like, I've got to say, we've gotten used to it and not getting cutlery, and don't miss it. I'm actually kind of grateful that we're not getting it. And silly for us for not kind of saying earlier on, like, don't, you know, don't put it in, but it became such a habit, right, of all the takeout places. Right. And it's really about choice architecture. Like, how is it that we're just being bombarded with these habitual behaviors of waste without really getting a chance to even do better or bypass it? You know, I spearheaded the first plastic straw and cutlery ban in history, which was in the city of Malibu. And unfortunately, banning plastic straws was a lot easier than banning plastic cutlery. So here we are trying to at least have it only upon request. And most people don't even want it. So it's a win-win. And by the way, restaurants are saving a ton of money. I'll, I'll give you this one really interesting fact. Postmates announced that within a year, they saved 122 million packs of cutlery from entering the environment, and that was an equivalent of t- $3.2 million in savings for restaurants. So, yeah. you know, plastic is really important, but 
the next most important thing that I've ever done, probably in my whole entire life, has been um, trying to get more people to eat plants. Well, well that is the single most important thing we need to do right now. Sheila, let's talk about, I'm up on your website, and I was looking at it uh, earlier today as well. There's a form you can fill out to join a challenge that you have. It's called Hashtag 8 Meals. What's that about? Yeah, so... Um, Actually, it's a brand new app that we have, and it's available in the App Store under Habits of Waste. And Eight Meals was basically born because, you know, I'm very much involved in environmental work, yet one thing I've yet to, you know, be able to commit to fully is going fully vegan. And eating every single meal plant-based is just something that I felt was impossible. If I feel this way, I can guarantee that many of your listeners probably feel the same way. And I felt very dissuaded by the whole thing and always like, I, okay, I'm going to try this week, but then I'd fall off the bandwagon. I came across a study by the University of Michigan and Tulane talking about how Western cultures must decrease their animal protein intake by 40 to 50% at the very minimum in order for us to even have a chance at climate change. It is the number one thing individuals must do to make an impact. So I thought about that, and I said, okay, well, how do we translate that for the everyday person to be able to adopt this idea into their daily lives? So three meals a day times seven days a week, 21 meals, what's 40% of that? That mm. gives us eight meals. So that's the goal, is that we all want to try and increase our plant-based meals by eight meals a week, and we've created this new application to help everyone do that by providing recipes, linking your the meals you want to plug in into your calendar. You can check out how much of a carbon reduction you're making because by eating eight meals a week, it's actually 540 kilograms of carbon that you're reducing, which is the equivalent of driving a hybrid car a week. I'm sorry, a hybrid car for a year. So eight meals a week for a year is equivalent to driving a Prius. Um, don't you don't you almost amazing. feel like like I think about this year where we as individuals global citizens learned a lot about obviously a health pandemic but also what it takes to create a vaccine like we peeled back the layers and I almost feel like food production is a thing where I don't think we all really understand where a lot of stuff comes from or the impact it has we've we've done a lot of stories here at Bloomberg about meat meat production and what it does for the climate and the environment um you know what what do you think about in terms of what we need to do though to also educate people about food i mean we understand organic versus not and things like that but the mass production of food you know not so much although we got a glimpse of it right when all of a sudden the supply chain started coming undone during the pandemic right you know, one fact that always sticks um, is when you keep it really simple. So, for example, m creating one pound of beef is the equivalent of 8,000 gallons of water. Hmm. So just thinking about these small things that, you know, just like tidbits of information. And by the way, eating a plant-based meal eight times a week is not so, you know, impossible for many people. And in fact, you feel better and it's 25% less expensive. So there's a lot of wins in there for your health, for your wallet, for the environment. So if we can just look at it like, okay, I'm not going to commit 100%, fine. Maybe you will. You never know. After eight meals, a lot of people are like, ah, I'm kind of grossed out by meat. I don't even need it. Mm -hmm. Great. But my, my whole mission is to educate with as much small bits of information that would interest the everyday person that's not in the environmental world because people are living their lives. They're busy. They just got to get dinner on the table and they've got work and school and a million other things, especially this past year. So, um, 
Yeah, this is my philosophy that, you know, if you can just give small bits of info, it's great. What do you think is holding people back the most from doing things, little things, like you say, these habits, uh, you change them. If everybody starts to change a, a little habit that's a significant one, you can you can kind of alter the outcome of our climate. What's holding people yeah, back? I think people just aren't aware that their impact matters. So it's just that everyone says, well, I'm just one person. I'm only one person. But if we all said that, then nothing would get done in the world. So this is an opportunity. Our whole website, our whole mission um, on at habitsofwaste.org is really about inspiring people to know you do matter and your actions do add up. And, so, and then taking away obstacles. So, for example, the 8 Meals app is an opportunity for us to make it really easy and fun um, and interactive to try, you know, increasing your plant-based meals or cut out cutlery. Ultimately, companies want to do the right thing for their consumers. Um, and if the consumers speak up and are heard, then it's a beautiful synergy. So with, again, back to the, you know, cut out cutlery campaign that we did, the, the applications, you know, they're like these emails, can you stop sending them to us? So they're listening. It's, not, it's working. It's just a matter of, again, not shaming, and it's just positive, and just understanding that we all, we all can make an impact. It's so true. We can all make an impact, mm-hmm. each and every single one of us. That was Sheila Moravati, president and founder of Habits of Waste. The nonprofit is focused on reducing environmental footprints. Really love her points about doing small things that can make a big difference. It's a great way that we can think about accomplishing goals, too. Right. You can start moving the needle, all of us, just uh, a little step at a time. All right. Be sure to check out that full conversation it's in our podcast feed and that wraps up the weekend edition of bloomberg business week from bloomberg radio thanks so much for joining us i'm carol masser and i'm tim stenovec be sure to tune into our bloomberg business week daily show monday through friday it starts at 2 p.m wall street time on bloomberg radio you can also watch our daily broadcast on youtube just search bloomberg global news also check out our bloomberg business week podcast you can find that at bloomberg.com apple or wherever you get your podcast and that's where you'll also find our extra podcast this week it's Teresa payton former White House Chief Information Officer, in fact, the first woman to have that position. And CEO at the cybersecurity advisory and strategy firm Fortalist. It's, of course, timely considering that Bloomberg exclusive on the group of hackers who breached a massive trove of security camera data. And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now, our special equality issue. Also find it at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a great weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg.